Welcome to the Bridge to God's Word podcast with Carla Unseth, a linguistic consultant for missionaries working in Bible translation. We invite you to visit us at www.bridgetogodsword.org to learn more about Carla's ministry. Now, here's linguistic consultant Carla Unseth. Hi, this is Carla Unseth with Building a Bridge to God's Word. Thanks for joining us as we continue our journey through the Bible. We are just beginning our journey through the New Testament. Last time we looked at an overview of the New Testament, and this week we're going to dive in by looking at the life of Jesus, who is the Messiah. In the very beginning of the Bible, in the Garden of Eden, we saw the relationship between God and humanity broken by the sin of Adam and Eve. And the rest of the Old Testament tells the story of longing and hope as humans look for a way to restore that relationship. There are human attempts, which are often really humanity's attempt to not need God. And then there is the slow revelation of God's plan. After the Old Testament ends, there are 400 years where no one hears from God. And in the New Testament, everything begins to change. First, God speaks. A priest named Zechariah is ministering in the temple when an angel of the Lord appears to him. It's no wonder he was afraid. No one had heard from God in so long. The angel tells Zechariah that he will have a son. This son will not be the Messiah, God's chosen one, but he will prepare people to receive the Messiah. This news was too much for Zechariah to comprehend, and he actually responds with skepticism. Imagine, though, what he must have thought and felt as he considered the news that finally God's plan was about to be put into action. Six months later, the angel of the Lord appears again, but this time to a girl named Mary. God reveals that she also will have a son, but this son will be the son, the promised one. He says in Luke chapter 1, verses 32 through 33, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary would have immediately recognized this promise. Do you remember which one it is? This is a fulfillment of God's covenant with David that he will have an everlasting kingdom. And Mary, unlike Zechariah, responds in faith. Fast forward nine months, and we have the birth of Christ. Wow. Take a minute to comprehend how all of history so far has led up to this point. Think about the hopes of so many people and how they've rested on the promise of this one, the seed of Eve, the descendant of Abraham, the son of King David, and here he is. Let me just pause here and tell you something I've learned about Jesus' birth that I think is really interesting, and that is, here he is, born not in a barn all by himself, but born surrounded by family in a small room off the main house where animals would have been kept. We should remember that first century Israelite culture would have been very different from ours, and one of the ways it was different was that it was a hospitality culture. This means that it would have been unthinkable to leave a pregnant woman out in the cold. Not only that, but this was Joseph's ancestral town, meaning that he would have had relatives there. And even if they were distant relatives, 
they would be obligated because of the hospitality culture to take in Mary and Joseph. So the real problem is in the story that their guest room was full. This word that's translated in is really better translated as upper room. In fact, it's the same word used for the upper room where Jesus had the Passover later in the New Testament. So this was more like a guest room, an extra room in the house. But houses also had a small room where animals were kept that needed to be kept inside, animals that needed a little bit more protection. So it would have been ideal for Mary to give birth there in that room because it was already unclean. And if the house was crowded, they wouldn't have had room for a whole room to be unclean. So her giving birth with the animals wouldn't have broken any cleanliness laws for everyone else in the house. So Jesus was probably not born all alone, but rather surrounded by family. The Bible does indeed say that he was rejected by men. But if we see that he wasn't rejected from his birth, we realize that his rejection was a result of his teaching about the kingdom of God. And that fits in with with his teaching that he will be rejected for what he says. So his rejection wasn't from his birth. So that's just something I've learned that I think is interesting and I wanted to pass on to you. So Jesus grows up in his family circle, and it's not until he is 30 years old that he starts his ministry. Sometimes I wonder what Mary thought up until this point, if she expected him to just become a carpenter, or if she really thought that someday he would go out, he would leave their family and begin his ministry. But as Jesus began his ministry, it involved two primary things. One, showing the power of God over the earth, and two, teaching about the kingdom of God. So Jesus' ministry of power, showing the power of God over the earth, came in the form of the many miracles that he performed. He healed many people, and these healings showed that God has power over our physical bodies. And as a further extension of this, he raised people from the dead. So he had power over death. There are three miracles of Jesus raising someone from the dead, and that is a young man whose mother is a widow, Jairus' daughter, and then Lazarus. So all of these show God's power over death. And of course, there really is one more person that Jesus raised from the dead, and that was himself. So God raised him from the dead, but Jesus also was God, and he took part in that, in raising himself from the dead. Jesus also demonstrated power over the natural and the supernatural realm. So we have stories like the calming of the storm and the feeding of the 5,000 that show that natural forces submit to the will of God. In the feeding of the 5,000, it looks like the normal limitations on nature are removed as the bread and fish are miraculously multiplied. But even more than that, in the calming of the storm, it looks like nature itself is recognizing the Godhood and the supremacy of Christ and submitting itself to him. It's not just a miracle, it's obedience by nature itself. Beyond nature, Jesus demonstrates his authority over the spiritual realm by casting out demons. The supernatural realm is clearly under Jesus' control because the demons can't resist when he casts them out. And they also recognize who he is and they often say that he's the Messiah, the Son of God. The disciples 
on the other hand, have less success in casting out demons. And in one instance, when they ask him why, he responds that if they had faith as big as a mustard seed, they could move mountains. This has often led people to think that they somehow have to manufacture a certain level of faith. If you can get your faith as big as a mustard seed, it seems small, but really it's hard to do, then then you could do whatever you want. But I think we're missing the point when we think that. Jesus was actually making a different point. It wasn't about the quantity of faith, but rather about his own power over the supernatural world. The point was not how much faith you have, but who your faith is in. So if the disciples had faith in Jesus, it didn't matter how much faith they had. If they had faith in Jesus, if they understood his will and were working toward his will, then they would be able to do these things because he is faithful and the world submits to him. As we just saw, the natural world and the supernatural world submit to him. So as long as the disciples were looking to him and following him, it wouldn't matter what level of faith they had or what quantity of faith. And the same is true for us today. We have to remember who we have faith in rather than trying to drum up a certain amount of faith. So this leads right into Christ's message while he was here on earth. His basic message was a call to the kingdom of God. He said over and over again, the kingdom of God is here. His parables were about the kingdom of God and his teaching was about how to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, in Luke 4:43, he says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. So he was sent to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And in fact, he says also that he is the kingdom of God among them. He says that in Luke 17, 21, he says the kingdom of God is in your midst. In other words, it's already here and it's in his own person. So what is the significance of the kingdom of God? It really goes back to God's plan from the very beginning. God's wanted to restore people into relationship with him. But as we've clearly seen, human kings and kingdoms haven't been able to do this. In order for us to be in a relationship with God, there has to be a kingdom that is not like an earthly kingdom. It must be a kingdom where all people have submitted themselves to God, both in love and in obedience, and where God reigns. It must be a kingdom where sins have been covered forever and where the people have God with them at all times, not just in a temple. And that is what the kingdom of God will be. People will repent and choose to follow God. The blood of Jesus will cover their sins for all time. God will reign on his throne but also the Holy Spirit will live in each and every person in the kingdom of God. So God will always be with every person. This is good news. It means that sin and death are defeated forever. And the peace and perfection that God intended for all the earth is restored. What good news. But in the life of Jesus, his teaching and ministry were not complete without one final act. And that is his death. We just said that in this new kingdom, there must be a permanent covering of sin. This is necessary for sin to be finally defeated. 
So the way that sin is covered or taken away is through blood. Someone must die. However, it can't be just anyone. It must be someone who's a human and not just human, but a perfect human. So they can perfectly represent obedience. And it must be someone who is also God. So they can represent God and humans in this covenantal sacrifice. And of course, there was only one man who could do this. That was Jesus Christ, both God and man, perfectly obedient in his human body and also fully God. So this might make you wonder why Jesus had to be both God and man in order to be this covenantal sacrifice. And that really is a good question. And it's kind of a big question, so I am not going to be able to address it right now, but maybe I'll be able to address it more in a future podcast. So Jesus gave himself up to death on a cross in order to redeem us and to usher in God's kingdom. But Christ's death would not be fully complete if he died and that was the end. Death would not be defeated. Instead, as God, Jesus had to rise again to defeat the final enemy of death. And so, in great triumph, Jesus rises from the dead and appears to his disciples. And now the plan is complete. Redemption is available. The kingdom is opened. So this is where the Gospels and the life of Christ ends. But it's not the end of the story. And we still must see what it means to live in the in-between stages, before the kingdom is fully here, but after it's opened and available by the death of Christ. So we'll look next time at the fledgling church as it was just learning to live in this now and not yet of Christ's kingdom. So I hope you will join us again next time to look at the book of Acts and the the emerging church. And we will see you then on Building a Bridge to God's Word. <music>